0: Um, good morning. Good morning. First, I just wanted to start off, uh, well, let me explain first. Over the summer, um, I was doing a couple things around here, um, sort of an internship-like program, and part of that was meeting with Pastor Dick every week, and he was taking me through the steps of sermon preparation uh, in order to do this. And so I just wanted to start off by taking a moment to appreciate the resource and wisdom we have in Pastor Dick. Um, One of the main things I learned through doing all this is how much work goes into a sermon every week. I've been working on this for three to four months now, and (laughs) he manages to put together multiple really good, well informed, biblically based sermons every month. And not only that, but he's a great teacher. And I promise any of the numerous mistakes you'll probably hear me make this morning are a reflection of me and not on his teaching skills. So if we could just give him a hand real quick. Um, I'm just going to pray before I start. Um, Lord, I thank you that uh, I can trust that these are your words and not mine. Um, I just pray over this morning that... uh, people can hear what they need to hear, and that uh, you can give me the strength to say what you want me to say. Um, Yeah, so we go into this with open hearts, hoping to listen and learn. In your name, amen. So here we go. I heard this story in another sermon, uh, because I'm not quite at the level of having my own sermon illustrations yet. (laughs) Two brothers, seven and nine years old, are sitting at the dinner table. Uh, Their main dishes are clear, except for the few pieces of broccoli that they've shoved to the side in the hopes that their mom wouldn't notice. All is well until the cover is removed from the cake plate in the middle of the table. The last two slices of chocolate layer cake are sitting there. This is seemingly the perfect situation, two sons, two slices of cake, but you can tell by the mounting tension in the room and the fixed eyes on the two pieces of cake that the kids have that there's something wrong. Now, the problem doesn't lie in the amount of slices left, but rather the size of them. You can tell whoever cut it originally probably didn't do too good in 10th grade geometry because while one cake was big enough to keep one of the kids energized with sugar to make bedtime struggle for the mom, the other one was more of a gourmet style. In other words, one and a half bites of really good stuff, but no more than that. The mom, noticing this potential situation, thinks back to the earlier that morning on the car ride back from church and asks, Hey, guys, what was the lesson this morning in Sunday school? Both the sons know exactly where she's going with this and don't want to fall into this trap. <laughs> well, she asks. The older son hesitantly looks up and says, It was about asking what Jesus would do. Right, says the mom. So what do you think Jesus would do? He would probably give up the bigger slice of cake and keep the smaller one to himself, he said. Mom was pleased with herself for avoiding this potentially explosive situation until she hears the younger son pipe up. All right, brother, you be Jesus. (laughs) You be Jesus. That's not really what we're supposed to say, is it? when in a situation where one person has to give up something or sacrifice something, um, we should probably be the ones to do it, right? We should be Jesus. That seems to be how it should go. But I have to say that sometimes it just seems like it makes more sense to say you be Jesus. I've done it a lot and I'd be willing to bet we've all done it a couple of times. If not in those words, then we've thought it some other way. Um, and If we don't say it, we think it, for sure. Two weeks ago, actually right now, um, I was helping move in the class of 2017 to the dorm rooms at my school. Now, I don't know how many of you remember being a freshman or moving in kids who are freshmen, but let me tell you something. Freshmen over pack. I've been doing this for two years now, and I've seen it all. I've seen U-Haul trucks. I've seen like four cars come in filled with stuff. I've seen someone try to move an entire couch into about two by two fit dorm room. It's ridiculous. And so if, you've, if it happens, I've probably seen it. So there are two crazy days of freshman movement, Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is definitely the busier day where about 80% of the freshmen move in. And so we're there at 7.45 in the morning to greet them and carry their stuff up to their rooms. The nice thing about Saturday, though, is that it's the first day. We go out there without the wear and tear of mini-fridges on our muscles or blisters on our feet, and this is why the second day could pretty accurately be described as miserable. Cars are rolling in more slowly, sure, but no one wants to move at all. Knots the size a sailor would be proud of are in our backs, and every time a new car shows up, it's a war between our desire to help these new eager freshmen and the incessant complaints that our body's making on us. So around two hours into day two, I start to notice something. Of the about 30 or 40 volunteers there to help people move in, it's about the same 10 or 15 people getting up for each new car. This is where the bitterness starts. I get up, I'm like, here I go again, as I drag myself up from the small ledge I'm sitting on. If you're volunteering, then come to help. Step by painful step, I walk over um, to the car and I start to unload it, noticing every single person who's not doing it. Um, And by the end of the six-hour workday, the bitterness is almost more present than the physical pain. The worst is seeing people who are there with the church group that I was with, uh, sitting around and not doing anything. I'm like, this is what we're here for. You be Jesus already! And that's just an instance of inconvenience or pain. Um, There's other times where it seems almost necessary to ask others to be Jesus. I don't know who here has ever worked in a group project, um, but it's pretty accurate to say that they're the worst idea ever. (laughs) Because, especially if you're not picking your partners and it's randomly assigned. It could be a professional project or a school project, but in my experience, it always goes one of two ways. The first one, which I think is pr- probably a little more common, is where one person just ends up doing all of the work because either schedule conflicts or just bad work ethic, but you got to get the project done so you're just going to sit down the night before and not sleep. I don't know if that's professional project, but that's definitely how it works at school. Um, then there's the second situation where you have two or more people in this group coming in with their own vision for the project. And this can sometimes be even worse because you come in with this strong idea, with this mindset of, all right, here's how we do it. I have this experience going in. I know that this works, so let's just do it. And then someone comes along and is like, here's my idea. But you know that you have more experience or you've thought this idea out more. And you can get that A. You can get that promotion with this project or you can keep your job even sometimes and so you just wish that they would be Jesus and let you do the project and so I guess that's it thanks for coming extra coffee hour just hope other people do the right thing the thing Jesus would do and hopefully it'll all work out Um, yeah no that's not the end that would be a really bad ending <laughs> <laughs> I probably didn't quite show it As best as I could have, but I hope that those two situations at least bring to mind situations where you might reasonably even say you be Jesus. Um, The thing is we all do it and there's a reason for it. We're selfish people and that's because we can only experience what we experience. We can't experience what other people are doing. Um, it's a problem of perception so when I was sitting down during move-in or when I took a bathroom break that was a little longer than it had to be or when I intentionally went for the lighter box from the back of the car that's because I could feel the strain on my body I knew that I needed that I knew that I couldn't keep going at the pace that I did the day before and so that was necessary but when I see other people doing it it's because they're lazy or they're not here to help or any other reason I think it's the disconnect between what we experience ourselves and what we perceive other people as experiencing that leads to the you Jesus phenomena and that's where the plight of the Philippians comes into play I'm sure most or some if not most of you have heard the metaphor of the one-way phone conversation in regards to the epistles We're given half, if even that, of a larger conversation between the author of the book and the church or person that he's writing to. Because of that, we have to speculate a lot about the details. But here's what we know for sure about the church in Philippi at the time of Paul's writing the letter. The letter is one of friendship. He didn't write it to reprimand or to call to account the people in Philippi. In fact, the main purpose was to thank them for a recent gift and to update them on the current situation he was in in prison. But that overall positive met tone of the letter didn't mean that he didn't take some time to point out some areas for improvement, specifically in church unity. We know for sure that there was at least an issue between two people in the church named, and please excuse the butchered sounds that are about to exit my mouth, because reading names out loud is not a strong suit of mine, Iodia and Synchdeci, I think. That name only has one vowel, and it's a Y, and that barely counts. So, Um, anyway, these two are urged to be of the same mind. And there may have been other divisions that Paul addresses at the very end of Philippians 1, but we aren't really sure if that's the same or a different thing. Um, Anyway, of course, there's no way to be exactly sure what the issue between these two people was. It could have been something really trivial, but the... High praises Paul gives the women, saying that they quote have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, leads me to imagine at least that the issue is one of more church importance. Um, perhaps Iodia really believed that more effort should be go to serving the poor, while Syncleti was of a strong mind that 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 those resources should go towards missionaries like Paul, or maybe. They would stay up late into the night until their tongues were tired and their faces were red, debating kosher food laws. Or possibly it was simply whether prayer should come before the worship or after. But regardless, we know that, or we can at least guess that because Paul doesn't side with either one of these women, that there was no particularly correct answer to their problem. They were just coming at this issue from different perspectives and different opinions, and so they butted heads. So how do you deal with something like that? How do we settle problems when there's no right answer? Paul's immediate response is, you be Jesus. Not in the, I don't want to be Jesus, so you do it, kind of way, but rather the step it up and set an example kind of way. He says, quote, In your relationships with each other, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. He then goes on to politi- poetically describe Jesus' humility in one of my favorite passages in the Bible, which can be found on 831 in the Pew Bibles, if you wanna look it up. Um, He says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I think that the language Paul uses here is so wonderful and poetic that we can read this and get caught up in the flow and the emotion of it and just be like, wow, Jesus is amazing. And that's definitely true. And that's part of the point here. But what I've missed a lot of times when I've either heard or read this is that it's not just a praise of Jesus's humility and what he did for us, but it's an example that Paul is calling us to follow. And that's pretty huge. And it also makes sense. This passage is mainly talking about Jesus' relationship with God in regards to his becoming human. And Jesus was God, and God is obviously God. And so that relationship between perfect peers is something that we should try to emulate with our peers. Um, So what is that? What are we trying to emulate? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the example is humility. If... It's the reduction of ego for the sake of others. Humility is the ultimate answer to that problem of perception. There's nothing we can do to actually experience what other people are going through, but what we can do is lower the importance to us of what we're experiencing and sacrifice that in order to make those around us have a better experience. Now, before I go on, I do have to point out a couple of things just to avoid some less than ideal interpretations of the message as a whole. First, I want to emphasize that, as far as we know, this message was given to a people in a situation where there was not a correct answer. I don't think this is to say that there wasn't necessarily a better answer, but there's a key difference between something that's right and something that's better. Why does this matter? Well, there are situations we might find ourselves in where there is a right answer. And I think it's safe to say that Paul was not encouraging a believer who is in an argument about, say, whether or not Jesus rose again, that the believer should back down in order to avoid conflict. Jesus is seen multiple times standing up to people with controversial spiritual beliefs, and that conflict eventually cost him his life. Essentially, truth can create conflict. And if you can't speak truth without causing conflict, then the truth trumps every time. Secondly, I think it's important to say there are destructive relationships that exist. And sometimes an overly submissive attitude can just fuel those relationships. Now, I haven't been in a situation like that, so I can't speak too much to it. I just want to encourage prayer and talking with other believers and sometimes just common sense in order to help discern those. And so while I can't, answer that, I do want to point that out and it's something to keep in mind. And finally, as you might know, I'm not married, that's a shocker, so so I can't speak to what it's like to be in that kind of relationship with someone else and I don't want to. And so while I believe that the message here is true and biblical, I can't and wouldn't want to presume to tell anyone who's married how to live this out in that kind of relationship. Because I'm not really qualified for that. And so I realized that's kind of vague, but I felt like it needed to be said. Anyway, onward and upward. I think the key that we can get from this passage is that humility is a choice and an active action. It doesn't say that Jesus was humble, but rather that he, quote, humbled himself. Now, I've been told that I'm humble more than once, and I think that most of the time I probably come off that way. But honestly, I think that's because I'm not too extraordinary at many things. And so, sure, I can do a good number of things well or decently, but I'm more of a variety man than a specialist. But that means that when I do do something that I'm really good at, sometimes people are shocked because, like I do with other things, I tell it like it is. And so, I don't know. A welcome week. Oh, sorry, Welcome Week is one of the best times ever at school. It's like a week for freshmen where there are no classes and a ton of events and free stuff. And the best part of helping organize some of those events is that I get to be there and hang out during Welcome Week. Let me tell you, a college atmosphere without the responsibilities of classes might just be what heaven is like. I can't (laughs) promise that, but I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Um, For me and many of my friends, of course, that means that when we're not hosting events, it's video game time. I took the train to DC this um, earlier this summer, so I had two bags and a backpack, and one of those bags was the, half the bag was my Wii U, its controllers and games. So about one third of my stuff was devoted to this. I don't know how many of you guys have ever played Mario Kart, but uh, let me just give a brief summary. Mario Kart is a kart racer starring Mario, and it involves turning into giant bullets, throwing turtle shells at people, racing on a giant rainbow in space, needless to say, it's like the best thing ever. And it's one of those things that I'm really good at. (laughs) Um, I have not been gifted with the art of smack talk. I've tried it. It doesn't really work very well for me. It usually just ends up people shaking their head and be like, "Nah, man, don't even try. But (laughs) what little I can do comes out when I'm playing Mario Kart. I will promise people before they play me that they will not come within a half a lap of beating me. And this is i I'm not joking. So I'm, I'm gonna... I, I, I will win. I, I let people know that. And this isn't just to say that you shouldn't play me in Mario Kart. You probably shouldn't, but there's an actual point to this. The point is that people aren't just humble people. When people are good at things, they know it. And our tendency is to let other people know that we're good at that, often in a way that's pretty prideful. And Jesus knew that he was God. That's, that's I mean, Mario Kart God. <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. And so he h- humbled himself knowing that. And so what does that mean for us? Well, unfortunately, it means we lose an excuse I'm just not a humble person. Sorry. isn't doesn't really cut it. Um, the reassuring thing about Jesus' humanity is that he experienced all the temptations and tribulations that we have, which is really cool, but that also means that when it comes to things like humility, we can definitely do it, but we have to choose to do it. Luckily, we can do it in the same way Jesus did. Constantly throughout Jesus' life and time on earth, we read about his constant communication with, and really, we want what we think we want, but God wants what we need and what's best for us. And he can provide that for us because we can see, uh, because as we can see in the second half of our passage, that God delights in the humility that Jesus showed. Now, I'm not saying that by not bragging at Mario Kart, I will be exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above all. Because that's a little silly, and um, because we can't humble ourselves like Jesus did, because we aren't coming from that high place. We can. We, he brought himself from here to here. All we can do is bring ourselves from like here to here. So we can't have that same experience that he did. But we do know that through this exact through. The, the Bible and God's Word that we are called to this humility, and that God delights in our obedience, and so we can be we can be confident that if we seek through God, that He will bring us to a point where we can do it, um, and that He will be glad for it, and it will be good for everyone, and He places a very high value on our actions with one another. Um. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's how I was going to wrap this up, in the typical college essay style of ending on a lofty quote by a famous person and then applying it to what I was talking about. But Dick had a different idea. I'm I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. No message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, then look at yourself and make the change. It's a similar move. I'm just replacing Gandhi with Michael Jackson. But (laughs) now you have that song in your head, so I guess it's worth it. (laughs) The point is we can't get inside each other's heads, except for by saying song lyrics. That's a little bit close. Um, And we can't feel what they're feeling. But we can make our heads a little less big. When you think you be Jesus to other people because Jesus was the best, and I I mean that literally as I can... He was the best there is, so that's why we ask people to be Jesus. We want a world where other people are Jesus, but we have to be the first ones to do it. Expecting others to be Jesus will only lead to bitterness and disappointment. But when you be Jesus, and when I be Jesus, it leads to satisfaction with God and with each other. Not only that, but in order to be humble like Jesus did, we have to be in a relationship with God. So relationship with God leads to humility, which then leads to a closer relationship with God because that's how God works. Going into him just brings you even deeper into him. And so all I can say is go out and be Jesus as best as possible. Pray and do. Exame, examine your attitude when dealing with other people and catch yourself because it's not an easy thing It's something that we do instinctively, and it needs practice and prayer, and I'm not at all there yet. So um, I just want to pray us out, I guess. Lord, I pray that you can magnify the things I said that are in line with what you want, and cloud what I said that wasn't. And may we all be like you this week as we go out. Amen.